We've grown from about 150 to 400 people. Um, Sundays like this, it's well over 400 people. And, and the incredible thing is, the thing that's kind of you know, intimidating and, and dwarfing at the same time um, is that we've seen that that's not been like over the years. You know, We started with 150 people. That's like in the last 12 months, um, we've just seen such a tremendous amount of growth. And to be honest, it's because so many of you um, have, for whatever reason, trusted us. Um, you have invited your friends. Um, perhaps you talked to a friend that's your uh, you know, roommate's with, that you're, in, you know, you're possibly a family member, somewhere that you work with, whoever it is, um, and maybe you've told them about Jesus yourself, perhaps you've invited them to church, but for some reason you've trusted us and you've invited and invited and invited, and over the last 12 months we've just seen a tremendous amount of growth. Um, now I want everybody to look around for a second and I want you to imagine what would it be like if you had more elbow room right now, you know? You know that person next to you that you don't really know and they don't really know you and you feel kind of awkward. Now imagine there could be a seat in between you guys, you know? Um, just kidding. But the, the, the way that this whole thing works is when we, let me, let me kind of just tell you a little backstory about this. When we first went to this, uh, it got in this building, it costed us about $50,000 to renovate this, and it just saved us tons of money in rent. Um, in order for us, or, you know, for us to move in, it's going to cost us around $100,000 to renovate this new building that we're moving into. Um, this building is about you know, 3,800 square feet. Um, the one that we're moving into is a little over 9,000 square feet, so you know, it over doubles our current space. We're going to have a sanctuary that's bigger than this, this entire building. We're going to have an entire kids' ministry wing. It's going to be a phenomenal thing, and the reason that that's all important is because we have seen so many people engage in faith for the first time or for the first time in a long time um, because you have done such a tremendous job of inviting and investing in the people around you. And so we're excited about this. This is one of those problems that when you run out of space, this is the problem that churches pray for. You know, This is a unique thing that we get to see happen, and we're just so, so, so excited. So in a second, we're going to kind of like celebrate, and if you are familiar with how we celebrate here, we don't celebrate with like a little you know, appropriate church golf clap. You know, It's like everybody really gets excited. My prayer request is one day somebody brings an air horn in the hope that we celebrate on a Sunday, you know, and you just kind of do the graduation, uh, 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 like three people later, you're still going, uh, 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 and everybody's family's mad. That's what we want to happen. Like mid-sermon, I'm like, cut the air horn, people. So that's, that's kind of the goal. But that's how we're going to celebrate because, and here's what we're celebrating, you guys, I'm just telling you, this is such a unique problem. This is such a unique thing that happens. We've experienced this much growth in this little period of time. And so we just want to celebrate all the work that God has done in and through all of us here. So on the count of three, we're going to celebrate. Ready? One, two, three. Very good. Very good. Very good. Best part of that was my front row fellas going, yeah, you know, all right. You know, it's not like, usually that's like a girl's like, ah, you know, so appreciate you fellas. Um, okay, so, so here, here, here's how that works. Let me just kind of clarify. In order for us to move in, you know, to, to get all the stuff that we want and, to, you know, signs and all that stuff, it's about 130 grand. To move in is 100 grand, which means if 400 people, if 400 people give $250 over the next five months, we're doing this throughout the, through the end of August, um, which means if you're a college student, you're like, man, I just don't have much money. I don't have that much money to give. This is all it would take from you. If you make minimum wage, let's say you make 805 an hour and you were to take on one extra six hour shift once a month for the next five months, you would contribute your part. And so it's super manageable, super easy, and we're just hoping and praying that God provides, as he did when he, you know, kind of through the generosity of the church, um, provided this building that we paid for the entire thing on the front end, um, that he's going to do that same thing when we had, you know, maybe, you know, 80 people or so that were given. Now we've got, you know, over 400 that gather every Sunday. And so we're just so excited about the future of what God wants to do in and through us and in and through this opportunity that we have um, to continually bless the community and help people come to know Jesus. So commercial over, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thanks so much for this time that we have together. Father, I pray as we 
as we walk through this time together, as we walk through your word, you would help us to see you better. You would help us to understand you more. You would help us to continually grow in our relationship with you. For those of us who walked in the door, we've been walking with you faithfully for a long time. I pray that you would help us. You would make this fresh for us. You would revitalize our relationship with you through this. And perhaps for the person that walked in and for the people that walked in, for all of us that walked in for the first time in a long time, maybe for the first time ever through the, through the, the doors of a church building, just interested, investigating, not really sure what we think, not really sure what we believe. God, would you reveal yourself to us during this time together? Individualize it, personalize it, make it relevant to us. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. All right, so we are in the last part of a series called The Last 24. This is kind of the landing strip for this series. Um, to, to be brief about what the whole thing is about, the whole series, is it's essentially studying the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that there's um, four particular people who wrote stories of Jesus' life. Not stories, they're more so accounts. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, there were plenty of other people who wrote about Jesus' life, but these were the four that were mainline. These were the four that were trustworthy. These were the four that no one had a problem with, and so they kind of became canonized throughout a long period of time in the early kind of New Testament period. Well, as each one of these writers was writing what would become Matthew, what would become Mark, what would become Luke, what would become John, these writers that, by the way, are named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you guys are so smart. So as they're writing all that in their writing, none of them had the idea that, you know what, I am going to write the Bible. You know, I had breakfast at a holiday inn this morning. I'm feeling super smart, had a wonderful quiet time with some lucky goat coffee, and I'm feeling so spiritual. I'm going to write the Bible today. All of them, all of them wrote as a letter or as an account to a person or to a group of people to have an orderly account of the life of Jesus Christ. And what's fascinating is as each one of these writers got to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, it's almost like they all slowed down and with tremendous detail accounted for the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. In fact, here's what's interesting, here's what you may not know. In all of ancient literature, in all of antiquity, if you were to go 500 years before or 500 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 500 years before in any, you know, you know, part of the world, any kind of ancient text, if you were to take any of the 500 year periods, both before and after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, there is not another document, there is not another historical event that even comes close to the amount of detail, to the amount of accounts that we have both in the Bible and outside of the Bible that account for the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's almost like all of a sudden, the people who are writing this paused and said, you know what? This is extraordinarily important. This little Jewish carpenter, this fella named Jesus of Nazareth, when he died, he came back to life. There's some details that we just can't miss. There's some things that everybody just has to know who's interested in this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Next Sunday, we're going to celebrate Easter just to kind of give you a little heads up about Easter. Easter, we're, starting, we're launching a brand new um, sermon series. And let me just tell you, I'm absolutely thrilled. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And here's what this series is. It's called Starting Point. The essence of it is what does it look like to come to an adult starting point in faith? For many of us, you know, you're raised around churches. Maybe you're raised outside of the church. And as an adult, you develop your own thoughts, your own opinions, your own hesitations, your own independent thoughts, your own criticisms. So the question is, as an adult, as an adult, what does it look like to come to an adult 
starting point in faith. But before that, what we're going to look at specifically today is about the crucifixion of Jesus himself. Now, pause. Whenever we talk about the crucifixion, again, this is the end part. This is right when he's about to die or as he dies. Whenever we talk about the crucifixion, oftentimes what happens is there's a guy like me who stands up with the microphone and goes into incredible detail about the physical pain of Jesus. But here's what's interesting. What happened spiritually? In fact, the spiritual pain that Jesus felt far, far, far exceeded in terms of importance and in terms of pain. Anything that he could have felt, anything that he could have experienced physically. In fact, here's kind of the question I want to answer by the end of the day. Why in the world did God have to die? Why in the world did God have to die? And and why in the world does that make difference to me? Why would a guy who died a couple thousand years ago have implications to my life today? Because let's be honest, people die every day. People die every day. In fact, people I know, people I love have passed away. And yeah, there's memories. Yeah, there's all this kind of stuff. But none of them have a belief system around them. None of them have this idea of salvation around them. And so why in the world did God have to die? And why and how in the world does that have anything to do with my life today? Because here's what we're going to find out. What happened with Jesus when he died was so much more than a physical death. What happened to Jesus when he died was so much more than a Roman cross. There was tremendous, extraordinary, spiritual implications and weight to what happened as he hung on the cross. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 21. If, again, if you're familiar with the Bible, then perhaps you know this. The idea behind Mark is that Mark was probably the first guy to write the Bible. That's why Mark, you know, his book is the shortest. The idea was, you know, some of Matthew and some of Luke um, were derived from Mark. They kind of took some of Mark as the base skeleton for what they would write and then added on top of it. And then there's this whole John thing that nobody knows. I was like, where did John come from? He's kind of got a bunch of his own stories and a bunch of his own sources. It's a whole different sermon for a whole different day. But the idea is Mark was kind of the first guy to say, okay, I'm going to write down a story about Jesus. And in chapter 21, or chapter 15, I'm sorry, verse 21, He tells about what happened. He says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in and from the country, the father of Alexander of Rufus, to carry his cross. Talking about Jesus' cross. Now, pause. Let me give you a little backstory about why he's carrying it. Up to this point, Jesus has been through a lot of stuff in the last 24 hours. He's had his last dinner with his disciples. On top of that, he has gone into a garden and spent some time in prayer. On top of that, he spent some time with a guy named Pilate and a guy named Caiaphas and a guy named Annas and a guy named Herod. That he's gone back and forth in this trial. And the essence of the trial was simple. The Jews wanted him killed. And the reason that the Jews wanted him killed was different than the reason that he ultimately was killed. Here's what's interesting. When the Jews wanted him killed, they wanted him killed because he was messing up their religious system. Everything that they had, everything that they did was all about and was all around this idea that Jesus is kind of messing up their religious system. That he would come and he would claim, you know, this exclusive knowledge about God. He would come and he would claim teachings that were different than anybody had taught before. And as he gained traction, as he started to teach, as he healed people, as he fed people, as he (laughs) brought people back from the dead, naturally... His momentum and his message continued and started to carry more and more momentum, which messed up their religious system. And so they went to Pilate and said, Pilate, you need to do something about this guy. And this was the reason. 
This is the reason why Jesus eventually died. The reason why he eventually died was because they looked at Jesus and they looked at Pilate and said, Pilate, here's the problem. He's claiming to be king. And everybody knows that the only king is Caesar. And Pilate, just so you know, if he claims to be king in your jurisdiction and you don't do anything about it, then Caesar's going to hear about it and Caesar's going to get rid of your position. And so because of political pressure, eventually Pilate caved. Because Pilate didn't want to be the guy who let the ca- guy who came around saying that he was king, you know, eventually be the guy who you know, potentially would dethrone Caesar. So Pilate agreed and allowed Jesus to be crucified. But before that, to hopefully sub- you know, subdue the crowd and to make the crowd happy, Pilate would have Jesus whipped with this cat of nine tails where you know, flesh was just ripped off to the point where it was so gruesome, it was so, you know, they had it down to such a science that they did it 39 times because they knew if they did it 40 times, there was a very good probability that the, whoever they whipped would die, but 39 times and you probably wouldn't die. Crown of thorns just buried into his head. Eventually he says, isn't this good enough? And the crowd says, no, crucify him crucify him and so jesus takes his cross but at the point so weak that he can't carry his own cross so they had this other fella carry his cross for him and they brought him to the place called golgotha which means place of the skull and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh but he did not take it and they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting them for lots to decide what each should take and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the, ins- and the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And when they crucified, and with him they crucified two robbers, one to his left and one to his right. Now, here, here, here's, here's what maybe you don't know, or perhaps you do know about the crucifixion. Incredibly gruesome thing. In fact, Greeks invented it, Romans perfected it. Greeks invented it, Romans perfected it. And what would happen is that when you would die from being crucified, um, you wouldn't die from the physical pain. You would die eventually of, suff- of suffocation as they put you know, nails or you know, basically stakes through each one of your hands and through your feet. You would have to push up off the, the bottom stake in order to catch your breath and you go back down, push up, and eventually you lost the strength, you lost the ability. In fact, most times when people um, were crucified, they wouldn't die in a day. It would take multiple days. Now here's, here's fascinating. Romans weren't allowed to be crucified because the crucifixion, being crucified, was so gruesome, it was so horrific that if you were a Roman citizen, you weren't allowed to be crucified. The, the, the kind of the country or the nation or the kingdom of Rome would say, we're not going to do that so gruesome, that's so brutal, we're not going to do that to our own citizens. In fact, here's, 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 I, I think all this stuff's fascinating, so sorry if I say that too much. Another thing that happens is that for a couple hundred years, No one paints, no one does a sculpture, there's no artist work of the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, you know, for us, it's kind of commonplace, we all have cross necklaces, and we have paintings, you know, we have photographs, I guess we don't really have photographs of Jesus on the cross, you know, but there's there's all kinds of outside stuff that we have that depicts Jesus on the cross. Now, here's here's what's fascinating, again, when Jesus died, for a few hundred years after No one had a single painting of anybody on a cross because the cross was so gruesome. Why in the world would anyone paint that? It just didn't even make sense to them. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross, catching his breath, 
letting it go. Catching his breath, letting it go. They start casting lots for all of his clothes. They start making fun of him. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from that now from the cross that we may see and believe. In other words, Jesus, if you want us to believe in you, here's, here's all you got to do. Save yourself. And those who were crucified with him, even the people who were crucified with him, reviled him. Now, here's what we discovered last week. That Jesus at any point could have saved himself. In fact, what's, what's just incredible about the story of the trial is at every juncture, Jesus could have avoided the cross. When the guys came to arrest him, John accounts the story. When the guys came to arrest him, Jesus walks up to him and says, who are you here to arrest? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And when he says, I am he, they fall down. It was something about the way he talked, something about the way he said it, but they fell down in submission and reverence to God. And Jesus could have said, that's what I'm talking about. I'm out. I'm not going to get crucified today. But it was the will of God for him to be crucified. Jesus of Nazareth came and he did tremendous things. He came and he fulfilled, I mean, prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet would say, this is where he's going to be born. This is how he's going to talk. This is what he's going to look like. In fact, this is how he's going to die. This is how all these types of things are going to go down. And he validated and fulfilled. And then he healed. And then he taught. And then he performed miracles. And then over and over and over, he did all this stuff. But the point of Jesus' life, the point of Jesus' life was not to fulfill prophecies. The point of Jesus' life was not to perform miracles. The point of Jesus' life was to die on that Roman cross. And so when he got delivered over to Pilate, he had multiple chances to talk Pilate out of it. When he got delivered over to Herod, he had multiple chances to talk to Herod out of it. Not even to talk in Herod out of it. Herod, this is fascinating, Herod wanted to meet Jesus. It's like he's been looking forward to him. It's like he's looking at him saying, that, that guy's like David Blaine. I've heard about this guy. He performs miracles, you know. Can you do like a little card trick where, you know, and all of a sudden it's in the door, the door's glass so we can see it. And oh my gosh, that's my card. He said, come on, Jesus, do one of those. Jesus wouldn't even talk to him. Because it was the will of God for Jesus to be hung on a cross. As Isaiah would say it back in Isaiah 53, It was the will of God to crush him. And so they're all saying, save yourself. Jesus is just sitting there thinking, I'm sure you have no clue what I'm here to do. Now, as it's getting close to the end of his life, this next little section, this next little passage, Jesus makes a statement. Jesus makes a statement that for us, is a little bit confusing, but as we unearth the clarity behind what he was saying, just lays into the implications of what was happening spiritually. Again, because the physical part is what we look at, but the weight and the gravity and the pain of the situation lied in the spiritual of what occurred. So this is what happens. And when the sixth hour had come, so we'd been sitting there for a while, been hanging on the cross for a while, there was darkness over the whole land. 
until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, so Jesus has been on the cross for about six hours at this point. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this statement, this passage, I think has so, this might be the deepest passage in this passage, probably overstating it, in the entire Bible. And let me tell you why. Because as Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that God was absent. It's not that God wasn't there. It was that at this point in time, at this moment, what, we, what happens and what the, the writers of the New Testament would look back and say happened is that he became sin. That the sin of the entire world was not just laid on his shoulders, but was manifested in his body. And at that moment in time, the judgment of God and the wrath of God laid square on Jesus' shoulders. That is to say, here's kind of how it works out transactionally. That since the beginning of time, since the beginning of time, since Adam and the garden and all that stuff happened, and in our daily life, we all have this central problem, which is sin. Which is that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's not like, here's when we talk about sin, it's like, oh, you know, you judge me. No, 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 because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of our problems. And in light of that, what happened is that God continually throughout the Old Testament was saying, I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a Messiah. And he's going to justify, he's going to rectify this problem because the, the, the consequence of sin, the consequence of sin in our lives is a separation from God because God is holy, God is pure, God is perfect. And if he has any impurity in him or around him, he no longer is pure. And so everything in God and around God must be pure. The problem is, is I've sinned. And I might be able to do a lot of good stuff so that if there was like a scale in my life, the good would outweigh the bad, but there's always still going to be something in that bad side, no matter how much good I weigh it out with. And that bad drives a wedge between God and I. And the idea of what Jesus did as he hung on the cross is that he took all of that from my life. He took all of the bad decisions. He took all of the times that I've messed up. He took all the times that I've intentionally messed up. He took all the decisions, all the rebellion. He took, you know, that 13-year-old Ben and that 9-year-old Ben and that 18-year-old Ben and now that 32-year-old Ben that constantly makes sinful decisions. And he took the sin of the entire world and became our sin. And at that moment, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the fullness of the wrath of the judgment of God, the penalty that we should face because of our sinful decisions rested on Jesus. And he cries out in agony, my God, my God. Because he paid. He took. He bore my sin. Yeah, the sin of the entire world. Yeah, your sin, but specifically mine as well. Pay the price that I couldn't pay. 
Because if I'm ever going to be made right with God, there has to be something to atone for, to pay for this separation that I've caused that I can't pay. So Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it. Said, behold, he's calling Elijah, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That is, there was this temple that happened. And in the temple, this was like kind of the manifestation of the presence of God. That, you know, you didn't go in here. Only the holiest dude on the block, only the high priest would go into this temple. And this temple was torn, essentially giving God, giving access to God from ever, everybody and for anybody. In fact, what's interesting is a little bit later on, um, Paul would write about this in 2 Corinthians 5 and kind of parse out and say, okay, so this is essentially what happened. When Jesus hung on the cross, when he died his last breath, when he took the fullness of the weight of the judgment of God, the temple, the, 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 the curtain was torn. This is what would happen. Chapter, chapter uh, 5, verse 20. He talks about our responsibility. He says, therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ, that God is making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. In other words, so our job now is to say, hey, be reconciled to God, that you now have an opportunity to be made right with God, that no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, no matter the mistakes that you've made, no matter the mistakes you made in your past, your recent past, today, you know, I don't care how crazy your summer was. In fact, I don't care how crazy your spring break was, you know. I know that cruise, I know everything that happened, you know, I just, I just want you to know. For anybody and everybody, you have an opportunity to be reconciled, ultimate forgiveness, ultimate grace, ultimate love, square on the shoulders of Jesus, that you can be reconciled or made right with God. This idea of reconciliation is a huge idea. It's kind of like if you've ever reconciled a bank account. You know, if your bank account's like my bank account, there's what the bank says and then there's what I say, you know. And i got to try to make those two things line up. And the idea is there's what God is and who I am, and I can't make those things line up. And when Jesus died, he reconciled, made, made compatible, made even me with him. And then this next verse describes exactly transactionally how that happened. He says, for our sake, in other words, for you and I, for the entire world, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, he made the guy who was not sinful to not just have sin resting on him, but he became sin. He became a liar. He became an adulterer. He became a glutton. He became an addict. He became all those things that we are, that we're honestly ashamed of. And he took that. He knew that. He embodied that. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him, we might have a right standing with God. As he who knew no sin became sin and specifically became my sin. You see, the idea behind this whole Christianity thing, let me just compare it down to the irreducible minimum. It's simple. It's this belief that I'm incompatible with God. It's this belief that I have a problem called sin. And it's belief that Jesus paid that price 
so that I could become compatible with God. We might talk about faith and it's so mystical and all these types. No, 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 no. It's simple. It's very simple. It's profoundly deep, but it's so simple. It's kind of like this. Let's say we're, you know, you got a car. Let's say we all got a car. We all got the same problem with our car. It kind of shakes a little bit, kind of rattles a little bit. You know, maybe it's got a flat tire or something like that. You take it to the mechanic. You take it to the mechanic and say, I got a problem with my car. The mechanic says, you're right. You do have a problem with your car. And this is the fix for your car. You need to do one of two things. You believe the mechanic and he fixes your car or you don't. And you walk away and you risk it. Those are the two things. And the idea behind Christianity is simply a realization that I am sinful and God has offered reconciliation to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, to anybody and everybody, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you're from, regardless of the things that you've done, regardless of the mistakes that you made, that God took on that. And it's simply by the belief in him. It's simply by the acceptance. Yes, I believe that. I would like you to fix that. I believe that you already have fixed that for me. That you and I and we all can be reconciled to God. See, I love how this story ends in Mark. In Mark, there's this fellow that's looking on. Right at the end in, in, in verse 39, I go back to 38, it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This is, this is the idea. That this guy, this guy who didn't believe in Jesus, this guy who for whatever reason thought that, you know, this was all a big farce, this guy who probably had plenty of objections, saw Jesus, was watching as he carried his cross, was watching as people made fun of him, was watching as he hung on the cross, was watching as he breathed his last. And when he died, the centurion, the Roman centurion, the Roman soldier looked at him and said, there is something so extraordinarily different about him. He must be the son of the living God. And our hope, is that people, our hope is that you, our hope is that as many people as possible, that we as a church can help as many people as possible come to that exact same realization, that there is nothing good about us, but for some inexplicable reason, God has given us reconciliation to him through his son, Jesus, on the cross. And God, the reason that God had to die The reason why Jesus is the perfect answer is he was both man and he was God. He was man so he could pay the price for man and he was God so his death could pay that price for man eternally. And he says for anybody and everybody, for anybody and everybody who would place their faith, who would place their belief in reality, That Jesus, as the centurion came to the conclusion of, even though he watched his death, even though there was a million things that were going on, even though even in that day he took on the personal baggage of watching and and presiding over Jesus' death, came to the realization that he is the son of God. 
So here's our hope. That for many of you, for some of you, shoot, maybe for one of you, that makes sense today. That for the first time in your life, maybe you've heard about Jesus a thousand times, but for the first time in your life, that makes sense. That you believe that you have a central problem. That you believe that we all have a central problem called sin. And that in light of that sin, we're fundamentally incompatible with God. But Jesus came to make the incompatible compatible. He came to make the irreconcilable reconciled, and he came to bring us from death to life. That not only do we get ultimate grace, ultimate love, ultimate forgiveness, ultimate acceptance, but we get a relationship with God that God has marked through intimacy by allowing us and inviting us to call him our heavenly Father. And so maybe for the first time for you this morning, you want to place your belief in that. Maybe for you for the first time in a long time, you walked away from it for a while, and for the first time in a long time, the reality, the reality, the reality of Jesus' death on the cross compels you, the love poured out for you compels you to make him, to believe in him as your personal Lord and Savior. Here's how we're going to do this. We're going to pray for you. About halfway through the prayer, we do this often, about halfway through the prayer, I'm going to count to three. When I hit three, I want you to raise your hand. Let me tell you real quickly why I want you to raise your hand when we do that. We're not going to have everybody out and everybody looking, but here's the reality. In the Bible, when people come to the realization that Jesus is Lord, when they were in the Bible, when people come to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, they cannot shut up about it. It's almost annoying. Like Jesus, like somebody else like, oh my gosh, I believe that you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, okay, shh, don't tell anybody. And they're like, are you kidding me? They just go tell, and go tell everybody. So here, here's what we believe. If you get this, if you get the love, if you get the grace, if you get the acceptance, if you get the forgiveness, on top of that, if you get the relational intimacy that you now have with the God of the universe, the idea is there is nothing I could do to talk you out of it. Counting to three, you're like, dude, don't even, I'm not even gonna wait till three. I'm going to number one. You know what I mean? Just, I might just raise my hand now. I'm gonna stand up and shout right now because I am so excited because this is what I get because God has forgiven my sins and made me right with him. Are you kidding me? So if that's you, and this may be for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, you want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity to. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for preserving these documents. I thank you so much for allowing all of this that's of such importance to be recorded in tremendous detail, that we wouldn't miss a word, a minute, of what was of first importance. God, thank you that on the cross, what happened spiritually far exceeded what happened physically. As you took the weight of the sin of the world and became sin and felt the judgment and the wrath of God so that those of us who place our faith, our hope, our trust, and specifically our belief in that wouldn't have to. God, we are so, so, so thankful. In fact, in all of our thankfulness, we really still don't even understand how big of a deal that is. So God, I pray for every guy in here, every girl in here, every man, every woman, who today's their day. Today it makes sense. Today perhaps they just have the courage for the first time or for the first time in a long time to make you their Lord and Savior. And if that's you, If you acknowledge the central problem of sin, 
If you acknowledge this gap that's caused between you and God in light of that, if you put your, your hope, your belief, that Jesus bore the sin of the world, and not just the sin of the world, but my sin specifically, your sin specifically, it made you, gave you the availability to be made right with God. If that's you, perhaps for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, you want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. I'm going to count to three, and you're going to raise your hand. You ready? One, two, three. Go ahead. Wonderful. That's phenomenal. All right, you can put your hands down. If that's you and you just raise your hand, I want you to pray with me. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for making me who was incompatible, compatible with you. Thank you for taking the judgment. Thank you so much for taking the wrath that I could and should deserve and giving me a a right standing with you. So come be my Lord. Come be my Savior. I give you my life and my everything. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.